You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good to see you this week, church family. I hope you are well. Um, if you are just joining us here at Northway, again, I want to welcome you. My name is Shay Sumlin. I'm one of the pastors here and grateful you're with us. We are uh, continuing in our study this week through the, uh, the book of Genesis. And so if you have a Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 6. And um, we, uh, when we left off last week in our study in Genesis, things were not too good. I mean, we've been looking at really the downfall of humanity from Adam and Eve's sin in the uh, seven to ch- 10 generations that immediately followed. And um, what we saw last week was really the pinnacle of human depravity upon the earth. And uh, in fact, so much so, this first part of chapter six is so sobering. And in fact, verse five of chapter six, where we saw last week, is maybe one of the most somber verses in the entire Bible, which says that the, the Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's such a, such a tragic statement and commentary. Um, God looking upon the earth and see that every intention in the creation that he made, every intention is only evil all the time. And, uh, and the result of which was the promise that uh, judgment was going to come, that God was not going to tolerate evil and rebellion anymore, that judgment was going to come. And that leads us now to this next section that's going to start here in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. And this will be the introduction of the third, what we have been calling the Toledot sections. Toledot's the Hebrew word that means generations. And we've seen these dividers in Genesis. There's 10 of them. We've seen two so far, the generations of the heavens and the earth, And then we saw the generations of Adam that led all the way up to Noah. And now we are seeing the generations of Noah. And in this account, we're going to learn about Noah. We're going to learn about his family. And we are going to cover the account of the ark and the flood. Now, got to just say right out of the gate, when you hear the phrase Noah's ark, what are the images that come to your mind immediately? Chances are, some storybook version, probably got a little bit of Fisher Price up in that mug. You've got some, this scene of Noah and his beard and this robe and a couple of giraffes flanking him and uh, the sweet boat with a rainbow kind of over it. And it's these, these warm, it's these elicit these warm, playful feelings of cute and, and playful. And yet we're going to absolutely see that image crushed today because that couldn't be further from the reality of what we're going to see in this story. This account of the flood and the ark, it is heartbreaking. It is the comprehensive judgment of God upon the comprehensive sinfulness of man. And it is almost as devastating for us to read and imagine as certainly for that generation as it was to experience. And yet it's also a story of rescue. It's a story of hope. It's a story of salvation. It's a story of a God who loves to extend mercy and grace and grant deliverance for the righteous. Now, in all this account is two and a half chapters. I am going to read the whole thing. Now, I do not have time to comment on every single thing that there's so much in this text. And 
and just in case you're wondering, it took me about nine minutes in my office to read through the whole thing. I've been fairly on point. We'll read through it. I want you to see the whole arc of the story, no pun intended, but I want you to see the ARC of the whole story. And in doing so on the back end, I want to present just a few themes, major themes that are not only present in the reality of the story, but also are pointing us forward towards a future reality that is coming for us that I believe the Lord wants us to see in this story so that we might take heed now, just as those in Noah's day were called to. So I'm gonna read this starting in verse nine of chapter six, all the way through the end of chapter eight, which is verse 22. And it begins this way. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. So behold, I will destroy them with the earth. But make yourself an ark of gopher wood Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark is to be 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife and your son's wives with you. And every, of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up, it shall serve as food for you and for them. And Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days, I will send rain upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth and Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. 
And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on, all the, on that day, all of the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And on the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and their three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind and every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days upon the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all the flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm upon the earth and all mankind, everything on dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. And at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days. And again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove. And she did not return to him anymore. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried off from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. 
Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of the, every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, it shall not cease. So the word of the Lord. And we all need a break right now. We'll take a little break, a little stretch right here. We good? Everybody with me? You good? All right. I want to talk about a couple themes that I think uh, are very intentional in this passage to take note of. But before I get there, I do want to address something that is a, a part of textual criticism. Those that would critique or criticize this particular account in terms of its historicity. Um, Many folks have wrestled to believe in the idea of a global flood. Many have read this and feel like, man, this this just doesn't seem like it fits with science. How, How do we explain all this? And even still, there are many that would recognize that there are many other flood myths that are out there that existed when this was written. And so how do we reconcile those? And, uh, and because of that, um, leads some to feel this isn't necessarily history. But I'm gonna tell you that my conviction is, and based upon what we see in this text, as well as other things, I think this is absolutely history. And for a few reasons that I wanna point out, number one, notice the amazing details that are in this passage. Specifically, one concerning the boat, Chapter six, verses 14 through 16 are amazingly precise details. Right, one cubit, they're talking about cubits here. We don't measure in cubits. What are cubits? Generally speaking, cubits were understood to be the distance from your elbow to your fingertips. On average, uh, many have figured around 18 inches, foot and a half, half a yard. So you do the math and those type measurements and you're looking at a vessel here that's being built that is 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. Takes up about 1.5 cubic, uh, 1.5 million cubic feet of space. Talking about 95,000 square feet of deck space that would be on this thing. We're looking at a vessel that is basically a football and a half uh, uh, long, football field and a half long. You're looking at equivalent of a modern, smaller cargo ship that we have today. And fascinatingly enough, um, a couple shipbuilders that I've had the privilege to even talk to will say there is a common ratio in shipbuilding that's used called six to one, and it was adopted from what we see in this passage. Even the modern ships that are built today are built in the same general design as is given in the precise details that are here. Now, why do I bring all that up? Because when we're talking about the other ancient flood myths, and by the way, there's over 200 of them that are out there. When you talk about the other flood myths, there is a lot of differences in those myths, one of them being the details. None of the other accounts give details like we're seeing in here. When it comes to the boats, 
even in some of the Sumerian or the Babylonian myths, such as Gilgamesh, um, the boats described aren't even, aren't even seaworthy vessels. One is described as a cube, a, just a square that's out there floating around. The other one is a pyramid. Another one has a pyramid that's shaped and none of them give any sort of coordinates or details precise, but this does. And in addition to this, we also see the very precise details of the dating of this, which is also not present in other accounts. We know the exact day down to the month and the day of Noah's life when the word of God came to him about the flood. We know the day when Noah entered into the ark with his family. We know the day when the rain began. We know the day when the flooding subsided. And we know the day when Noah exited the ark along with all the animals. And again, none of those details are in any of the other stories. Because when you're describing a myth, you don't have details. But when you're describing history, you do. And of all the nearly 200 other flood accounts, again, the differences that we see are vast, not only the type of boat, but even in the, uh, some of the Sumerian accounts, uh, such as Gilgamesh, um, the gods who bring about the flood, they are mad at the earth. The reason why they flood in Gilgamesh is simply because the noise was too loud on earth. Like a cranky old grandmother, turn that down! can't think up here. I'm going to send a flood. And they're mad. And you see this in all these other ancient Near East myths, you see the creation manipulating the gods emotionally in order to do these things. Something you don't see in this text at all. In other accounts, you have the gods sending the flood because of overpopulation because the earth is too crowded. So they just want to weed it out a little bit. In other accounts, you see the gods fleeing when the floods come because it gets so out of control and the gods are paranoid and they run because this thing has gotten out of hand. You don't see any of that. But what's amazing to me when you have a chance to study some of those 200 other accounts, it's actually not the differences that compel me to believe that this is the original story. It's the similarities. When you study the other 200 accounts, almost every one of them have a few common things that are shared across all of them. Almost always there is a favored family or a hero figure in the story who is spared. Almost every account has a boat, and uh, some sort of boat that's built. Uh, there are animals that are present on that boat. Almost every account has death coming through a massive flood. Almost every account, there is a bird sent out at the end. And almost every account concludes with those who are spared making sacrifices of worship to the gods that they perceive to spare them. And it's those similarities that for me actually makes this more probable that there was one real flood that existed on earth. At some point in human history, there is some catastrophic flood that what happened is, is that event occurs and much like the game of telephone, when you are taking history and passing it down through oral tradition, the details are gonna get shaped and reshaped across generations and across cultures. Once this story moves into another culture outside of the culture in which this first existed, they are going to adapt that story into their own narrative to fit their own myth. And even those that would go, yeah, but what about Gilgamesh? It appears to be written before the Bible. Even if so, 
Just because something was written before doesn't mean the, doesn't mean the event occurred before. The event happened before that. There was a real, in other words, there was a real event, a real flood that happened. And then that got handed down through oral tradition to a bunch of other stories that fanned out and became myth. And then eventually the God of the story, the real God of the story says, it's time to set the record straight. And I'm gonna record this and give it to my people who find themselves in the midst of a wilderness that are about to go into a brand new land and where compromise and synchronization is waiting for them. And I want to show them the consequences that came before us so we don't repeat that history here. And this is no accident to me. This, this appears with every detail in it to be real history. And this real history is pointing us even today in the 21st century to a real future that we are meant to see in this story. And so there are a few themes that we do well to take note of. Let me give you four in particular. And that is there is a promised judgment that is a central theme of this text. There is a provided rescue that is in this text. There is a persevering faith that we are meant to take note of in this text. And there is a postured worship that we need to take note. Of. There's a lot of other themes we can look at. Believe me, I've been living in this thing for a while and loving it. But these four themes, I think we need to pay attention to. Let's look at the promised judgment real quick. There is a theme of judgment in this text. Anyone can see that. And there's a few things about this promised judgment that we need to be aware of. One note, it is a just judgment. It's a justified judgment. This is the story of a holy God who created the heavens and the earth and now is holding his creation accountable for their actions. This is a holy God bringing judgment upon a sinful creation who has committed the highest crime possible that you can commit against God, which is treason, which is simply the creation rejecting their creator, worshiping the creation instead, as Romans 1 tells us. And this is a creation who has rejected their God and they are demonstrating that rejection through their wickedness upon the earth. No longer, God created human beings to bear his image. Remember Genesis 2 and 3, uh, 1 and 2, to bear his image so that they might go out and help image, not only image the glory of God upon the earth, but lead to human flourishing. But instead we have seen human depravity. We have seen human decline when sin enters into the picture. And God looks upon it and we see his description, chapter six, verse 11, the whole earth was corrupted. You see that term multiple times, corrupted. That is there on purpose. That is a direct contrast to what God saw in Genesis one and two, when every single day of creation, he went, it is good, it is good, it is good. And now it is corrupt, it is corrupt, it is corrupt. That every single human had filled the earth with violence, to the point, as we saw earlier in chapter six, verse five, every intention of their heart is filled with only evil all the time. And so this is God's just wrath being poured out upon sin as he promised he would do. Now, here's the deal in our day and age. And one of the things I'm grateful for, especially of a, 
a strong millennial culture that's kind of risen up in leadership in the church and now upcoming Gen Z with it, just a high bar of justice that I'm grateful for, of not willing to wink at sin's past to go, well, that's just the way it was, but wanting to hold accountable for the sins of our day and bring them into the light. And that's a good thing. And even in the court systems, we want judges. We want court-appointed judges judges who are gonna hold crimes accountable, who are gonna hold the law accountable. We don't wanna see partiality in the law. We don't wanna see partiality when it comes to justice. We don't wanna see one group favored and another group not favored. We, we want to see it, but is that not what we're seeing here? Is the non-partial judgment across the board on all sin. God is playing no favorites here. He is holding all of his creation accountable. It's why in Exodus 34, seven, he's gonna tell his people, I by no means will let the guilty go unpunished. That's why Romans 6, 23 says, the wages of sin is death. When God said, in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil, you shall surely die. He's holding them accountable in this. Kevin DeYoung probably says best concerning this passage, this. Until we understand that sin is an egregious offense against a holy God, the Bible will not make sense to us. Unless God is unimaginably holy and our sin is breathtakingly offensive to him, that events like these in the Bible will only leave you mad at God rather than at sin and humanity. If the flood really happened, and we believe it does, then it means that there is a God of massive and unrivaled power and majesty. It means that our own human sinfulness is worse than we think. It means that God's wrath is justly poured out upon sinners. And it means that we ought to call one another to repentance and righteousness. And it means that not everybody's gonna be saved because they're not all gonna want it. And so we see this is a just judgment. We also see that this is a comprehensive judgment. Now, while there is debate amongst many as to whether this account is describing a global flood versus a localized flood, and there are Christians who, great Christians who disagree on that subject, my lean is on global for many reasons, as we'll see in this text, but I think all would agree the point of this text is it's showing a comprehensive judgment a total judgment. Six, chapter six, verse 12, all flesh. Chapter six, verse 13, all flesh. Chapter seven, verse 17, all flesh. Chapter seven, verse 17, again, everything on earth, everything on earth. Nothing is going to escape the judgment of God. There's not a person on the earth who's got some sort of king's ex and go, yeah, it's gonna be, happen to you, but it ain't gonna happen to me. I'm not worthy of it. I'm, I'm more holy than somebody else. There's nobody who can say that. Nobody escapes this judgment. All will be held accountable. And notice it's not also just a comprehensive judgment, but listen to this. It is a patient judgment. It is a patient judgment. This didn't happen overnight. This is not God flying off the handle. This is not God in a fit of rage. This is not a God who's impulsive and quick-tempered like all the other myths accounts where the gods are just frustrated because it's noisy and overpopulated, like some cranky ogre. No, this is not God. Psalm 103 says, the Lord is slow to anger. And that's, we have seen nothing but that in this text. I mean, think about it. We've already seen that when the first edicts came that judgment was gonna occur, it was Methuselah. 
And when Methuselah dies, that's when it's going to happen. How long did Methuselah live? 969 years. That's a long time. It's a millennia of patience. The last 120 years, that's a long time for God to demonstrate patience over a creation who's rebelling against him. And then prior to that, all the generations before in the line of Cain. And it's interesting when you get to 1 Peter and 1 Peter's talking about this coming judgment that we're gonna face and he's referencing back to Noah, he uses one phrase to describe all that you read in Noah's account here. And it's that God patiently waited in the days of Noah. God was patient hour by hour, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, century by century. God was patient, not wishing for any to perish, but that all would repent and turn back unto him. I think one of my friends was saying it best. We are so used to God's patience that it actually shocks us when his judgment shows up. We read an account like this and we go, God, what a mean God. Oh, I can't believe you would do that. It's because we have been so lulled by his immense mercy that he hasn't dealt with our sin in totality yet. He is patiently waiting that all could turn unto him. And so it's a patient judgment. It's also a surprising judgment. This is what's ironic, by the way. Even though everybody had been warned, and we know that Enoch preached in his day that judgment was coming. We're told in the scriptures that Noah heralded his message in his day that judgment was coming. So the word was out there, yet as you read this, nobody saw it coming or nobody wanted to see it coming. Everybody's just living their life in total rebellion, assuming that the God who made them is either okay with their behavior or the God of the Bible may not be as real as we think he is. Because otherwise, why hadn't he dealt with this evil? And we do the same thing. And I think for all these reasons in this judgment, this text serves to actually point us to a future judgment that is coming. That one day, every single sinner will stand before God who will judge the living and the dead for their rebellion against him. And this text primes our hearts to know that is coming. And just in case we happen to pit the Old Testament against the new, which a lot of people love to do, to go, well, the Old Testament God version is like angry and mean and the new one and Jesus is so kind and loving and uh, same God, by the way. And just in case, listen to Jesus's own words when he says in Matthew 25, 31 and following, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations, everyone. And he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats will be on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But then he will say to those on his left, depart from me you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment while the righteous into eternal life. Those are the only two options at the end of the day. 
Those who have trusted in God's provision of rescue and will be counted as righteous and spared and into the presence of the Lord for all eternity. And those who have spurned and rejected God's provision have seated themselves on the throne and they will be judged and cast away from that presence for all eternity. And Jesus tells us in that day, when that future judgment comes, it will be like the days of Noah. Listen to this in Matthew 24. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage all the way up until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and it swept them all away, so will be the coming of the son of man. It's heartbreaking. The only reason this judgment has not occurred already is because God is patient. God is merciful, not wishing any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And we need to understand God takes sin seriously. God takes sin seriously. And even though, yes, there are consequences right now for our sin and our rebellion towards God, but a punishment will come. Judgment will come just as it was promised in the days of Noah and did. But oh, here's where we have the good news. Because tucked within this story of the theme of a promised judgment is also, is also a provided rescue, a provided salvation. Now we see this clearly in the story as well, that for those whose faith is in God, by God's grace, that person has not only been counted as righteous, but by his mercy, God has initiated and provided a very precise means of escape from the judgment that will come. I want you to notice Noah isn't told to flee in this account. By the way, that's one of the reasons why I tend to view this as a global flood because if this was just localized in the one little valley region, then why not just tell Noah to hit the next county? Why not tell him to, to go take the higher ground in the country right next door? You know why? Because there's no escape. It's comprehensive. It's total. And he isn't told to flee. He isn't told to quickly come up with his own means of salvation because God hasn't quite figured this out yet. So I need your best at it. No, he is told that God will provide the appointed life raft to bring, about, to bring about his precise deliverance from the judgment that is to come. And so he appoints for him a wooden ark. Now that to me is fascinating. Of all the things that God could have used to save Noah, he could have just lifted his family up for 40 days and 40 nights, you know, and kind of hovered on there. He chose for a wooden ark. And I think this too is pointing us to the future. But we didn't understand this, this ark, it's an interesting word for ark. The Hebrew word for ark here um, is not the same as the ark of the covenant. A lot of times you go, okay, so the ark, and then you have the ark of the covenant. They kind of simulate two different words in Hebrew, two different ideas in Hebrew. The ark that's used here, the Hebrew word is actually very similar to an Egyptian word that was used in that day for a floating palace or a floating tabernacle. It's a place of refuge in the sanctuary of God. And it's a word 
that is used in only one other place in your Old Testament, ark. This Hebrew word is used to describe a basket that Moses was placed into when he was set in the Nile and he was delivered from a watery destruction. It's beautiful here. A floating palace of salvation from a watery destruction. This is God's means appointed for God's deliverance of God's people who trust in him. And I want you to notice the progression in this text. This salvation, this ark, this is God's idea before anybody ever thought of it. This was God's idea. God then initiates the plan for the ark to be built. When it's built, God is the one who draws the people and the animals into the ark. And if you even notice in chapter seven, verse 16, God's the one who controls the door. He shut the door. There is only one entrance into this ark and God is sovereign over it. And on top of that, notice this boat doesn't even have a rudder. It doesn't have a sail. There's no ability for man to steer this thing. You're gonna have to trust the guidance of God in the midst of it. And in the same way, this wooden ark points us to the future provision that God would provide in a wooden cross our escape raft that God has provided, the only means of salvation that comes through the cross of Christ for all of our sins. And again, God has complete charge of it. Ephesians chapter one says that he chose this salvation for us before the foundations of the earth. We didn't have anything to do with it. He came up with the idea. He initiated the plan. And we're told in John chapter 14, this is the only means of salvation through Jesus Christ on the cross. There's no other way to the father. You don't get to determine multiple paths. There is only one that God has appointed through his son, Jesus. And we also see in John chapter six, verse 44, God is the one who sovereignly draws in all who come to the son in faith. And not only that, even Jesus in John chapter 10 emphatically declared that he is the door. He is the sovereign one. It's not just he controls the door. He is the door into our rescue. Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And even in Titus chapter three, we're told that this entire process of salvation is guided by the Holy Spirit. The rudder is not in man's hands. It's the Holy Spirit who brings about the regeneration of a heart, of a dead heart to be made new and alive in Jesus Christ. There is only one appointed means of salvation and escape from God's judgment, and that is Jesus's cross. It is by us turning away from our wickedness and trusting in God's provided means, whereby our faith is not in our own works, but has been the work of Jesus, who came and lived a perfectly righteous life where we have failed, who went to a cross so that he could absorb the due penalty of our sin that was owed to us. And it was his death on that cross that absorbed the just wrath of God that took it off of us and put it on him as a gift. And by putting our trust in him and not ourselves, By faith, through his grace, in Christ alone, we are granted his righteousness that's deposited into our account, even though we're not righteous. It is the amazing story of salvation that has been given to us. And if you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, oh, this is not just a theme for Noah. It's a theme for you. Salvation is for you. Put your trust in Jesus. And for those that have, I want you to notice another theme here. Not only a promised judgment, a provided rescue, but a persevering faith. The length of time that's described in Moses' building the ark is fascinating to me. 
Uh, we've already addressed one of the reasons why God gave this 120-year warning plus. It's because he's patient and he's merciful, giving people time to repent. But that time span is also cultivating something in Noah's life as well, and that is his faith. You ever wonder why God just didn't create the boat for Noah? Just say it. There it is. It's over there. I made it for you. Go get in. You got seven days. Jump in there. But 120 days to build a boat right here. Why didn't, why didn't God, why did God make him do this? Especially when there's no Home Depot around. There's no SpaceX and Tesla staff that's in some giant manufacturing plant cranking this baby out for him. Uh, it's a, and, uh, fascinating, by the way, if anybody's ever been to the Ark Encounter in Kentucky where they've built this replica of the Noah's Ark, I haven't been there myself, but uh, I am told that that thing, which is supposed to be an exact replica according to the measurements here, took uh, a thousand full-time laborers a year and a half to build. And here we're talking about eight people believing in a God that you cannot see, trusting in a rescue for a judgment that has not come, building a boat in a totally landlocked area where the nearest boat ramp was 400 miles away, doing so for 120 years, surrounded by a culture that hates your God, that thinks he's fake and thinks you're crazy for following him. Why would Noah do it? Faith. Hebrews eleven seven tells us, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. In other words, every hammer stroke on every board for 120 years, was both evidencing and cultivating his faith that God is real and that the promises God makes, he will keep. And he believed it all the way to the end. I think the question is, how about us? We say that we have faith in Jesus as a church. How do we know? How does the world know that what you say with your mouth is actually true? Uh, put it this way, think about the irony. If Noah, if Noah had said that he believed that God's word was true, that a global flood of judgment was coming, that there was only one appointed vessel for rescue that needed to be built, and he said he believed that to be true, and then for the next 120 years, we have an account here of him just collecting berries and going hiking and sightseeing, just kind of taken in the land. That would be a total contradiction to what he said he believed, what he said he was putting his trust in, what he said he was building into. It would be a total contradiction with that. See, Noah governed his present life by a future promise. That's why he persevered. He looked like a fool for 120 years in the eyes of the world yet proved to be true when that day finally came. And you know what? The same is true with you and I. And I want to say this to everybody in this room, but I'm going to be honest and say right now, I need to speak to the young men and the young women that are in this room, which by the way is the majority of our church. You need to be preparing your faith right now to play the long game, not the short game.
Your faith cannot be built off mere podcasts. Your faith cannot be built and summarized in 280 characters or less in a tweet. Your faith has to be more than just a few conferences that you attend, a couple camps you go to and get excited. It's gotta be more than just attendance on a Sunday. Your faith has got to be anchored over the long haul by abiding in Jesus Christ. And you know what? You're gonna look like a fool when you do it. You're gonna look crazy to the rest of the world when you do it. And there has got to be some faith sowing right now that's gonna give you an anchor that is gonna hold you through life's fiercest storms, that's gonna hold you through the tide of popular opinion in our culture, that whatever may come, whatever hell is gonna send your way, you've got an anchor of faith, like Hebrews says, that's gonna hold you all the way to the end like Noah. One of my professors at DTS, his name was Howard Hendricks, used to tell every graduating class, including mine, these words when he said, I am not afraid that you are going to go out of here and leave this place and fail. That's not my fear for you. My fear for you is that you're gonna go out of this place and you're gonna succeed at the wrong thing. That you are going to spend your day, all your days climbing the ladders of the world only to get to the top and find out they're leaning against the wrong building. Don't waste your life with mere lip servants. Don't be writing checks with your mouth that your life can't cash. Go put into action what you claim to believe is true. Cultivate your faith. Strengthen your faith through God's word, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the community of the church, and rally one another on, even in the eyes of a world that's gonna mock you, that's gonna say you're stupid. You're not crazy. I mean, Jim Elliott's words ring to mind right now. You are no fool who gives up what you cannot keep to gain what you can never lose. You're not a fool. Spanglers, you're not crazy for being in the age that you're at, sitting on this front row right here, week in, week out, holding fast to your faith. You're not crazy. Mark Wells, you're not crazy either, brother. Greg May, not crazy. Some of the older gentlemen in this room, the men and the women in this room, you're not crazy. You have labored well, not perfect, but trusting in a perfect savior. And the younger in the room amongst us, this is not a sprint. This is the long, the long play of the, of the game that we're in right now. Play towards that end. Do the small things well. Trust in the Lord and persevere. Amen? Amen. Think about Jesus's words in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If you find, by the way, it's one thing, one of the qualifications of an elder is that you're supposed to be well-respected by outsiders. We all want that. That's an exemplary remember. It's what a Christian should be. But if your life is primarily defined by an entire secular non-believing world loving everything about you because they see themselves in you, you might want to question where your faith is rooted. We are meant to stand out. We were not redeemed to blend in. We were redeemed to stand out, to be a light and a dark place for Jesus Christ. And what we need more than anything right now, church family, is we need some men and women of great faith in Jesus Christ to stand in the gap, 
to play the long game, to build into that which will last for all eternity, that we might be a people redeemed by God, recipients of his mercy and grace who spend our days like Enoch and Noah of old, heralding the gospel of the good news to those who are perishing, building into an eternal investment by faith and having the rest of our lives be an offering, a fragrant aroma of worship unto him. And by the way, that's the last theme that I'll point you to as we land this plane. Notice the first thing that Noah did when he got out of the boat. It's the complete opposite of Cain. Cain went and made a city for himself, made a name for himself, built an empire apart from God. You know what the first thing Noah did? He fell on his face in worship. By the way, it wasn't just two of every animal that went into the ark. Did you catch that? Seven of every clean animal. There's a lot more than just two of each kind. Why? Because the clean animals are gonna be used in the inauguration of sacrificial worship that's gonna happen here. But you know what's great about the Lord? Is we too offer a, an act of worship of thanksgiving to God for the amazing mercy that he's given us, but it's not a dead offering that we give. Romans 12, one says it's a living sacrifice. One that's holy and pleasing to the Lord. It's you and I living our lives in faith for the glory and the worship of God for the amazing mercy and grace that he has given to us, amen? And so in light of that, I'd love for us, those that are helping with communion right now, I'd love you to make your way to the back, grab the elements. I would love for us to practice that worship of the God who brought this salvation to us. Again, this is a text of judgment, but it's also a text of rescue. And we don't wanna miss this. And so what we wanna do is we want to spend a little time here celebrating communion together as a church. Um, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, we would ask you to hold off on this meal. This is a symbolic meal that we practice every week. And I'll be honest, get a lot of criticism sometimes, not angry criticism, but just criticism, man. Oh, why do y'all do communion every week? Doesn't that make it rote and routine? To which my reply is no, communion is not rote and routine. You are. That's the problem. I'm rote and routine. I'm easily bored. Um, we like sheep, we all wander. We are in need of a North Star every week that reminds us of who we are apart from God and yet who we are now redeemed by God and what God did to save each and every one of us who put our faith in Jesus. And that's what we do in this meal is we celebrate the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus that holds us together as a church. And, uh, and we want to do this as an offering of worship. Now we say this meal, the scriptures tell us this meal is only for believers in Jesus Christ. One of the ways that we affirm one another as believers in Jesus Christ is through local church membership, where we can hear each other's testimonies and ensure that we are putting our trust in Christ alone, by faith alone, in his grace alone. And so therefore we'll say communion is primarily for members of Northway Church. But if you are a Christian, a member of another church in good standing, we invite you to the table but if you have yet to put your trust in Christ, we would encourage you to instead take this time to consider the person and work of Jesus that your faith might be drawn to him and him alone. But for those of us who have done that, we wanna remember the salvation that has come our way and we wanna relish in God's free gift that he's given us through this memorial meal. And Paul reminds us when he wrote to the church at Corinth, when he said, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And church, 
As we take this bread, we are reminding ourselves that sin demanded a penalty. That penalty was death, and God was faithful to provide a substitute. Jesus Christ, who came and gave his body for us, we take this in remembrance of him. And Paul said in the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. Remembrance of me. And so churches, we take this cup, we're reminding ourselves, it was not our own works that saved us. It was the mercy of God that was present in the blood of Christ that was shed sacrificially for us to clothe, to atone, to cover our sin and make us as wide as the righteousness of Christ. And so church, we drink to the blood of Christ for our salvation. And as often as we eat this bread and we drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so Father, we thank you for the reminder of this passage, as sobering as it is, there is a judgment that is coming. It is a judgment that is just because you are a holy God and you are worthy of the righteousness that is due you. And we have committed high treason against you like our forefathers and mothers of old, sinning in the likeness of Adam and sinning in the likeness of Cain. And we are worthy of that judgment, but oh God, only because of your grace can we stand here today and testify that you are a God of salvation. You're a God of mercy. You're a God of forgiveness. And I pray anyone in this room who has not tasted of that forgiveness, oh Lord, might you sovereignly, like you did with Noah's family and the animals on that ark, would you draw them to your son Jesus right now and save them? And God, for the rest of us, we simply say thank you. And would you kindle our hearts this afternoon and evening to go out into the city of Dallas to the ends of the earth and make known the name of Jesus, for you are worthy of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.